0: KPFK in Los Angeles. This is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the hour, Erwin Chemerinsky will talk about the Trump indictment for the January 6th insurrection, and Katha Pollitt will discuss Barbie the doll and Barbie the movie. But first, the news from Ohio. Tuesday, Ohio had a referendum about making it harder for voters to amend the state constitution, including amending the state constitution to include a right to abortion. The amendment lost. Abortion rights won. For comment, we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, this was an effort by the Republican-controlled state legislature of Ohio to prevent Democrats from winning an abortion rights referendum with 50% plus one. They picked August because ordinary people do not vote in August elections. How did that work out for Republicans?
1: Not very well. They lost by a 57% to 43% margin. And, and they lost in, in in a sense on, on two key Republican issues. First, obviously, to ban abortion, but second, to override the popular the popular vote. You know, this is encoded in our system in a number of ridiculous ways, like the Electoral College. Uh, Republicans have been into, as it were, voter suppression for a very long time, and, and now they were trying the ploy of saying, well, even if you win, it won't count because we're raising the threshold to 60%. You know, this is the same process, by the way, that pertains in the U.S. Senate, which is sort of why the Senate has become the graveyard of uh, most decent legislation. So uh, expanding on that, they went after really the, the concept of majority rule, which is increasingly Republicans' largest strategic target that they have to get rid of because they do not command a majority on most major issues.
0: And I noticed that a million more people voted in an election over abortion rights than voted in the election for governor, senator, or congressional representatives. What can you say but wow?
1: Yeah, well, you know, so much for the strategy of trying to sneak this past voters in August. Uh, Obviously, anything at this juncture in American life that is related to curtailing abortion rights is going to rivet people's attention. So uh, that uh, that didn't really work very well for for the Republicans.
0: And how are we feeling today about Sherrod Brown's chances of getting reelected to the Senate next year?
1: Obviously, this helps. It's not decisive, but, you know, the Democrats will almost surely, as it were, nationalize the abortion issue. They'll make the point that if uh, there's a Republican president and a Republican Congress, they will try to outlaw abortion at the federal level, meaning the voters of any one state, no matter how pro-choice that state might be, like California, for instance, uh, will have uh, no say uh, in the matter. And so, you know, it certainly stands Sherrod Brown in good stead, particularly if, the, uh, if his Republican opponent turns out to be the Ohio Secretary of State, who was a person who uh, help navigate the, the ban on abortion through the legislature, and then as the really the parent of the uh, measure uh, on which Ohioans voted uh, voted on Tuesday.
0: Now, let me just clarify: this was not a referendum to add abortion rights to the Ohio Constitution. Now that will come in a future election.
1: Correct. Uh, this was uh, simply to raise the threshold of what constituted a victory in a ballot measure, taking it from majority to the same supermajority standard that the the Senate has with its idiotic cloture rules.
0: So Ohio now becomes the fourth red state to have voted on an abortion rights referendum since the Supreme Court overturned Roe. The others, of course, Kansas, Kentucky, Montana. Remind us about those. Those were all
1: elections which uh, abortion rights advocates won despite the red state status of the states, despite the fact that Kentucky uh, is represented in the Senate by uh, McConnell and Rand Paul, despite the fact that these are states that went heavily for uh, Trump in the last election. This is not an issue that unites Republicans in opposition. Many Republicans actually favor abortion rights. The Republicans uh, have done themselves no favor by trying to build on the Dobbs decision, and Sam Alito and the justices who oppose abortion and uh, put through the Dobbs decision. Uh, It put abortion opponents in a very difficult position because now that they're subject to the verdict of the electorate, they found out that the electorate is not with them.
0: There are three more states that significantly restrict abortions where Referenda on adding abortion rights to the state constitution will be on the ballot soon. Florida, Arizona, and Missouri. Let's talk about those for just a minute.
1: Well, Arizona is particularly important because it is a, the, a classic swing state in American politics right now. Uh, I I don't doubt that any effort to add abortion rights to the Constitution will pass there, and that will help the Democrats in 2024. Among the Democrats that will help, will be the Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden. So that that's uh, you know that's a big deal. Florida and Missouri are at this juncture pretty solid Republican states, though I very much doubt. Uh, that, uh, you know, the the six-week ban on abortion that Ron DeSantis signed into law earlier this year can withstand Florida voters uh, when they go to the polls on this. Whether that can swing the state, whether it will swing Missouri in 2024 is another real question. But there's no question that DeSantis in particular got way out Uh, on a limb uh, in a state that uh, I I would be, you know, I would assume uh, supports abortion rights at least at 55%, probably closer to 60%.
0: Well, I've said it before, but let me say it again. Our friend Mark Cooper has been saying for more than a decade, the Republicans banning abortion is the best thing that could ever happen to the Democrats.
1: Mark is being proved prophetic. It's absolutely
0: right. Well, now it's time for news of the class struggle in America, regular feature of this broadcast. The summer of strikes continues in Southern California. We had a massive one-day strike in LA on Tuesday. Thousands of municipal workers, members of Service Employees International Union Local 721 represents 7,000 city workers. First major walkout by LA city government workers in decades. This is hundreds of trash haulers, mechanics, gardeners, custodians, lifeguards, traffic officers, workers at animal shelters, airport custodians. LA, of course, is one of the bluest cities in the country. And as a wonderfully pro labor mayor, Karen Bass, what was this strike about?
1: These were workers whose uh, contract is, uh, is up and they want uh, you know, uh, raises commensurate to the cost of living in Los Angeles, which has soared particularly uh, with the, uh, the cost of housing, which is uh, clearly a very major issue in the hotel strike, which is also going on in L.A. and is actually one of the issues and the uh, strikes of the uh, actors and screenwriters.
0: And the L.A. municipal workers who had their one-day strike had one specific issue that is kind of emblematic of our times, which is that they they say there are hundreds or thousands of unfilled positions for airport custodians, for trash haulers, that the the workers who, who remained through the pandemic are now terribly overworked, mandatory overtime. They want these unfilled positions to be filled, and that's one of their big demands.
1: Right, and this is really kind of uh, something that's spread across the entire American workforce. I just did a piece uh, in The American Prospect on the sudden unionization of thousands of MDs, of doctors, and they find that you know the number of people uh, working in hospitals uh, after the pandemic is is much lower than the number that was there before. The work proved just too arduous, too demanding, not sufficiently remunerative. So they can't hire enough. There are school districts that can't hire enough teachers. And I don't doubt that for the members of SCIU Local 721, uh, who are, uh, you know, staffing uh, positions and need more help, that there's no one there either. Part of the problem too, part of the problem as well, is that uh, a number of these uh, public sector jobs don't pay as well as a private sector competition. And so uh, people who are going in, getting into some of these fields are getting into it uh, in, in, in the private sector. But you know, th- there's a host of reasons in, in many ways just related to the dislocations of the pandemic and the failure of many employers to be uh, to have staffed up. Uh, which puts a great burden on those who remain on the job. And certainly that's the case with the
0: LA city workers. Meanwhile, as you mentioned, the hotel workers strike continues. They have a fascinating tactic of surprise picket lines in key places, which go up for a weekend or a day or two. One weekend, it was the Disneyland hotel. The next weekend, the Sheraton Universal, the next weekend, the Beverly Hills Luxury Hotels, the next weekend, back to the airport. Uh, These are weekend strikes or one or two day strikes with big militant, noisy picket lines, and then they go back to work.
1: Right. Well, you know, among other things, uh, this is an easier version for the union to support than having to pay strike benefits to all 15,000 members who are covered, who, covered by contracts that have now expired, uh, and you know it—it it makes a virtue out of that problem. It makes uh, lemonade out of the lemon <laughs> for the union. Uh, you know they can. Uh, the Local Eleven has a history, just like the janitors that I mentioned earlier, of being very effective theatrically in their in their demonstrations. They're noisy. They bring drums. They take musical instruments. Uh, and if you want to get your case before the public, that's the kind of stuff that local TV news loves, uh, you know, and that the L.A. Times is obliged to cover. Uh, and it, uh, it, it's a smart tactic uh, for a union that does not have limitless resources.
0: And, of course, the Hollywood strikes by actors and writers continue. The writer's strike has reached, I think, the 100-day mark by this week. The studios did agree to return to the bargaining table with the Writers Guild, the first time since early May. Have we seen any reports of a contract emerging with the writers? Uh, The short answer and the long answer is no. Uh, uh, They returned to
1: the table. That seems to have been it. Apparently, there was no give on the writers' key demands about uh, being paid residuals for Uh, their work when it's streamed, uh, whatever issues they have, uh, which are considerable with artificial intelligence, uh, uh, and uh, maintaining writers' rooms of more than a handful of writers. Uh, Apparently, they got nowhere on that, and so we are still in the same morass that we've been
0: in now for, as you said, 100 days. There's also no settlement in sight for the 160,000 actors who are on strike. The picket lines last week, including included Adam Sandler and Ben Stiller, Brian Cranston, Colin Farrell, Sean Penn, and probably most important, America Ferrara of Barbie. Um, so they get in the news which uh, which the actors need, but there's no sign of a settlement there. Then there's, of course, the auto workers are continuing to negotiate with the big three, uh i understand the uaw is asking for a raise in wages uh how much of a raise well for the
1: duration of the four year contract that they're bargaining for they have asked for a 40% raise or as it were 10% each year now they didn't you know just draw that number out of a hat they calculated how uh how big the raises were for the ceos of those three companies over the last four years. And that came out to 40%, which is how they arrived at their own 40% figure. And I think that really raises a crucial issue uh, which the American public only somewhat understands. And that is the growing gap between what the top executives of big companies essentially award themselves with uh, compared to what the average worker uh, whom they employ. Uh, comes out with. Uh, This is not a static ratio. It has, to put it mildly, grown over the last 60 years.
0: Uh, you, You say at the prospect website that it's absurd that CEOs should make 300 times as much as workers, but the companies argue that they need to offer executives pay packages that are comparable to what other corporations offer if they want to attract top talent apparently you see a flaw in this logic
1: well in essence this is the ceo's union because it's the <laughs> board of directors who basically set uh, executive compensation and who sits on board of directors all over the place it's ceos of other corporations so you scratch my back and i will scratch yours and together we will average uh, maybe fourteen million dollars a year in compensation, which is the latest figure for what CEOs are making. Uh, minus, and that, and you know, that doesn't include in many
0: cases the stock benefits they get. Uh, you have some news to report about stock buybacks. This is the delightful practice of corporations of devoting their profits, buying shares in their own company. That raises the value of the remaining shares. The stock price goes up and everybody is happy. Well, maybe not everybody.
1: Well, since 1982, when the SEC, with Reagan's appointees serving on the SEC, said that executives could authorize uh, their companies to buy back its own stock, this has been you know, a, a surefire formula of executives basically giving themselves a raise. Uh, It doesn't follow, though, that their employees get anything out of this uh, unless they hold some token amount of stock. Uh, But what it fundamentally amounts to is a redistribution of income and wealth uh, to to the wealthy and to the extent that uh, CEO compensation, which in the 1960s uh, exceeded median employee in- income by uh, a ratio of 20 to 1 is now uh, roughly 300 to 1. And, uh, you know, there are some of us who think that is not the best use of, uh, of company money. Uh, and others of us may think that, you know, that creates a pretty oligarchic sort of arrangement that is not very, very healthy for uh, a self-proclaimed democracy.
0: So, what do you think corporate profits should be used for, if not for stock buybacks?
1: Well, this really became an issue in twenty fourteen with an article in the Harvard Business Review by uh, Massachusetts economist uh, William Lazonic. He looked at the S and P five hundred over several decades and concluded that if you looked at the profits of all those companies, and then if you looked at the amount of money they doled out to shareholders. In buybacks and dividends, well, that pretty much accounted for almost all of the profits, uh, and it came at the expense of investment in new plant, in new technology, uh, in <laughs> wage increases for its workers. You know, so it was pretty clearly an inverse relationship between however much you struggled at the. Uh, Shareholders, you weren't building factories, certainly in the United States, or upgrading your technology, or pouring money into research and development, or rewarding workers for a good job done.
0: And you say this pattern has changed in the last year or two.
1: In the last, uh, in the last year, actually, uh, uh, for the first time in a very, very, very long time. Uh, the amount of money funneled to buybacks by American corporations has actually declined by uh, about one third. Uh, And this comes at a time, lo and behold, when the amount of money American corporations are putting into factory construction has increased by 76% over last year. So there is a relation there. What makes the difference? Well, the fact that the uh, Biden... uh, Uh, Inflation Reduction Act is uh, giving all kinds of tax credits to companies that invest in uh, new green technology or new green factories or whatever. Lo and behold, that is encouraging uh, American business to maybe reward itself a little less for rewarding itself, which is the business (laughs) model behind uh, behind the share share buyback mania, and instead to use their profits to actually create a product something new something better it's a radical idea but you know uh it the the biden economic plan the parts of it that have been enacted seem to have really provoked this shift and it's a, it's about time
0: it's time for our regular feature where is melania my source here is the new york post page six And they report, quote, as embattled former President Trump faces his latest legal challenges, Melania has emerged as his anchor and secret weapon. She has been keeping Trump calm and focused amid the hellish week of his being indicted for the third time. Friends whisper that the last few weeks have been hard on Trump, and although he always presents a tough front, these constant legal assaults are affecting his day-to-day life but Melania, quote, is even better than his regular golf games at keeping Trump's temper in check, close quote. wonder if you have any comment on this report.
1: If what, we, what we're seeing is Trump being kept calm, this is like comparing maybe a Force 4 hurricane to a Force 5 hurricane. <laughs> I mean, I think Melania has a long way to go uh, before Trump, uh, you know, would actually be uh, presentable to the public. Although, you know, that's never deterred him before.
0: Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Great to have you on the show. Great to be here, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. We have some questions about the charges that were brought against Donald Trump in the January 6th case, and about the charges that weren't brought. For some answers, we turn to Erwin Chemerinsky. He's dean of the law school at UC Berkeley. He's a frequent contributor to the New York Times and the LA Times, and he's the author of something like 15 books, most recently, Worse Than Nothing, The Dangerous Fallacy of Originalism. It's out now in paperback. We talked about it here a few months ago. Irwin, welcome back. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. Well, the indictment, just to remind our listeners, lays out four felony counts. Conspiracy to defraud the United States. Conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding. Obstruction and attempt to obstruct an official proceeding and conspiracy against voting rights. All of the charges center on the fake elector scheme and the effort to pressure Vice President Pence to go along with it, rather than on the violence of the attack on the Capitol. So my first question is, why didn't Special Prosecutor Jack Smith indict Trump for inciting insurrection, or at least for inciting violence? After all, Trump summoned his supporters to Washington gave that speech, urging them to march on the Capitol and, quote, fight like hell, close quote, to keep him in office, despite the fact that he had lost the election. And then, of course, they attacked the Capitol. They stopped the counting of the electoral votes. They drove the members of Congress into hiding. They fought the police for hours. So what's the line between protected speech and incitement?
2: The indictment recites everything that you just said, However, as you rightly point out, it does not indict President Trump for incitement. I think the reason for that is, is you imply the First Amendment. There's another part of the indictment where it specifically makes clear that President Trump had the right to free speech and that included the right to lie. And I think that what the special prosecutor is very concerned with here is had he charged incitement, it would very much make this a case about the First Amendment and where the line is redrawn drawn in speech. And I think he thought it best to stay away from that constitutional
0: issue. And where do you think the line should be drawn between free speech and incitement since violence followed in this case? The Supreme Court has told us where the line is redrawn. drawn. It's a 1969 case, Brandenburg
2: versus Ohio. And it says that speech can be punished if there's a likelihood of imminent illegal conduct, and if the speech is directed at causing imminent illegal conduct. I've looked very carefully what President Trump said over Twitter and on the Capitol Mall on the morning of January 6th. I think there's a strong argument that under the Brandenburg test, Trump crossed the line and it became incitement. I think it was a strategic choice by the special prosecutor not to charge incitement, not to make this a case directly about the First Amendment, but instead to focus on the conduct that did attempt to defraud the United States, that did attempt to interfere with official proceedings,
0: and that did conspire against all of our rights. Well, Trump's first line of defense will be to seek a change of venue on the grounds that Washington, D.C. voted something like 94% for Biden. He had almost no supporters in Washington, D.C. What are the grounds for a change of venue? Who decides, and can that decision be appealed? The district court judge to whom the case is assigned will decide whether to change venue.
2: Anything conceivably can be appealed, though it's very difficult to appeal until after there is a conviction, if there is one, I think there is a very low likelihood of a change in venue. You'd need to show that it's not possible to get an impartial jury in the area. And the usual way of getting an impartial jury is to question prospective jurors. The idea that more voted for Biden than Trump doesn't prove that they're biased against Trump with regard to these legal charges. And that's the only issue with regard to the change of venue can there be an impartial jury with regard to these legal charges?
0: Let's talk about intent. Do they have to prove that Trump intended to break the law? Of course, he says he sincerely believed that he had won the election. The first of
2: the four charges, conspiracy to defraud the United States, does require showing that President Trump knew that he had lost but nonetheless attempted to have Congress declare him to be the next president of the United States. I think it's possible to show through what President Trump has said to others, let alone everything else that we know, that he had this intent. But the reality is that virtually all criminal laws require proof of an intent
0: of course this has been litigated already quite a bit in the january sixth cases several defendants have already argued that they invaded the capitol because they sincerely believed the election had been stolen because the president had told them it had been stolen and, and they believed the president but they were convicted anyway of things like trespassing and assaulting the police of course Trump didn't trespass or assault the police. So are these cases relevant or are they something different?
2: The case is something different. Those who are prosecuted for trespassing are being prosecuted because they trespassed. Now, it has to be shown that they had a criminal intent, that they had the intent to trespass on the Capitol grounds in an illegal way. But that's been proven. Donald Trump is not being charged, obviously, with trespassing. As we were saying a moment ago, he's not being charged with inciting individuals to trespass, he's being charged with other crimes. Those crimes have an intent requirement, but I think the special prosecutor has chosen carefully what to charge President Trump for. So he believes he'll have no trouble showing intent for each of these four charges.
0: And he also makes the argument about advice of counsel. He says his lawyers told him that what he was doing was legal. And therefore, he shouldn't be prosecuted for following the advice of his attorneys.
2: Following the advice of counsel is not a defense to committing a crime. Because a lawyer says you can do it doesn't make it lawful if it's otherwise illegal. Especially in this instance, where the other lawyers are named as unindicted co-conspirators, I expect that many, if not all of them, will soon be indicted. In fact, we've already got a federal judge in Southern California, Judge David Carter in the Central District of California, saying that he believed that John Eastman was breaking the law in the advice that he was giving to President Trump.
0: And of course, he was told by other attorneys, namely the acting attorney general and the White House attorneys, that what he was doing was not legal. And I guess you can't really keep going from lawyer to lawyer until you find one that will tell you what you want to hear.
2: Advice of counsel doesn't excuse committing a crime. If I had a lawyer say to me, well, it's fine for you to break the speeding law or drug laws or anything else, just like ignorance of the law is no excuse, advice of counsel is no excuse. Okay. you make the excellent point that you've got the former attorney general, the acting attorney general, White House counsel, all telling President Trump that what he's doing is illegal, that he can find some zealots who are willing to say what he wants to hear isn't defense to crime
0: and there's a lot of other interesting and relevant elements on the point of his knowledge here when vice president pence told him there was no constitutional authority for him to reject or return the electoral votes of of the states trump said to him quote you're too honest when the acting attorney general told Trump there was no evidence of fraud significant enough to change the election, his response was, quote, just say the election was corrupt and leave the rest to me and the Republican congressman, close quote. And when the acting attorney general talked about writing an opinion that Pence would not have the authority to reject the Electoral College votes, Trump told him, quote, no one here should be talking to the vice president. I'm talking to the vice president, close quote. In other words, he wanted to keep people from telling the vice president what the Constitution said. And the night before counting the electoral votes, Pence told him, quote, I don't have this authority. I'm not going to do it. And then Trump went out and made the public statement. The vice president and I are in total agreement that he has the authority to change this, close quote. I assume the prosecution will bring up all all of that. How strong is that evidence about Trump's intent and Trump's state of mind? It's very strong evidence. I'm sure you are right that this is the
2: evidence that the prosecutor will put before the jury. It goes to what we were discussing earlier. There's the need to show criminal intent. Each of those statements, individually and collectively, show the criminal intent
0: He was also charged with with depriving people of their civil rights, namely the right to vote. This is something new. It was not proposed by the House January 6th Committee. The law he's accused of breaking uh, was passed in 1871. Those of us who are historians of Reconstruction call it the Ku Klux Klan Act. It made it a crime to deprive people of, in particular, the right to vote. What the law as written, some people have argued, is about preventing individuals from voting. It has nothing to do with preventing Congress from counting the electoral votes of states. Thus, for example, the National Review wrote, what Trump did, though reprehensible, bears no relation to what the 1871 statute covers. What do you think about that argument?
2: I think the statute is unclear. I understand the argument from the National Review that we usually think of this statute as about threatening or intimidating people to keep them from voting as individuals. But of course, when you think of a presidential election, all we are voting for in a presidential election is the electors in the electoral college who then are certified by Congress. And if what President Trump is doing is trying to negate the electoral college vote from coming to fruition, isn't that the same as undermining individuals' right to vote? What meaning is there to our right to vote if in the end, the way in which it's played out in Congress is to choose somebody who's lost the election as the president of the United States?
0: Of course, we've talked here about the flaws in examining the original intent that we we think uh, underlies a law, but the uh, original intent of this law was uh, to enforce the Fourteenth Amendment guarantees of equal protection of the laws, especially around voting. And actually, that's an excellent way of describing what Trump's real crime was on January 6th. If you, as you've suggested, it wasn't just about Congress counting electoral votes; it was about depriving people of the president they had voted for. And that's, as you say, the most important issue at stake in this trial.
2: Exactly right. If keeping one person from voting violates this law, isn't negating the votes of 75 million people also a violation of this law, even
0: more so? But does the fact that this law has never been raised in this context, isn't that uh, relevant here? Of
2: course, it's relevant. And there's no doubt that's what President Trump's defense will argue. This is a Supreme Court that focuses very much on statutory language, not the intent behind the law. And the crucial question is going to be, did President Trump's conduct violate this statutory language? It is not going to be what did Congress intend back in the 19th century
0: let's talk about the charge of corrupt obstruction of an official proceeding. I understand that from a legal point of view, this is probably the strongest of the charges because in part hundreds of January 6th rioters have already been convicted of that charge. Do you think this will stick in the case of Trump since he didn't personally invade the Capitol and obstruct the counting of votes?
2: Everything that President Trump was trying to do in early January of 2021 was oriented to keep Congress from certifying Joe Biden as the president of the United States. He was trying to convince Vice President Pence to not certify the election, at least to delay it, or perhaps to recognize alternative slates of delegates so they would make Donald Trump president. Isn't that all about that obstructing Congress from doing what it was supposed to on
0: January 6th. Another uh, separate uh, issue. After Trump was indicted, he posted on his Truth Social website, quote, if you go after me, I'm coming after you, close quote. Does that qualify as witness intimidation, or is that a threat against the prosecutors, especially since If he wins re-election, he will be appointing the next attorney general and will be able to, quote, go after his enemies.
2: And Trump posted that in all caps last week. Yes, yes. Not clear who it's directed at. It's notable that last week, when President Trump was arraigned, the magistrate judge made a point of admonishing him not to say things that could be perceived as threatening witnesses. That statement certainly sounds like it's threatening people. And I expect that the federal judge who's now taking the case will admonish President Trump not to make such statements that sound like witness intimidation. Of course, the judge also has the possible possibility of imposing a gag order on President Trump to keep him from speaking about these proceedings. How that will be enforced, especially in somebody who's running for president of the United States is also an unprecedented question.
0: And will he go to prison for these charges? The, the penalties in the statute are pretty, uh, pretty extended. On the other hand, the New York Times had this big article reminding us that he's entitled to Secret Service protection for the rest of his life, even if he's in prison, so we're in another unprecedented territory here. That's
2: what I think is so important, that we've never seen anything like this before in American history. Obviously, the question of whether he goes to prison is going to turn on what he's convicted of. Is he convicted on one charge or four charges? We also have to remember, at this point, this is only one of three indictments against President Trump. There's the indictment in New York State Court about authorizing the hush money to be paid to Stormy Daniels, not reveal the affair, There's the indictment in federal court in Florida for the unauthorized possession of classified documents and the obstruction of justice with regard to that. It's likely there may be a process indictment in Georgia state court with regard to the statement that the secretary of state should find him another 11,000 plus votes. So it's so hard to predict, will Donald Trump be sentenced to prison for how long, given all of the indictments that are out there? Um, Also, I mean, judges will take into account his age and the circumstances, but the ideas you point out of a former president being in prison with his Secret Service agents is mind boggling.
0: (laughs) Yes, it is. And one final thing, if Trump is convicted on the January 6th charges... Do you think that will meet the 14th Amendment standard for disqualifying him from serving as president even if he wins the election? The 14th Amendment Section 3 says no person shall, you know, hold uh, federal office who has, quote, engaged in insurrection or rebellion, close quote. This was, of course, aimed at former Confederate uh, officials. Of course, he was not charged with the crime of assisting Inciting or engaging in a rebellion or insurrection. But the common understanding of insurrection is, you know, an action taken against the government to remove a legitimate leader and replace him with an illegitimate leader. And that is, of course, what Trump and his allies attempted to do. Jamie Raskin, Maryland Democrat, a former constitutional law professor, said, Trump, quote, really does fulfill exactly the constitutional prohibition there. I wonder if you agree with Jamie Raskin that conviction on these charges meets the 14th Amendment standard for disqualification from serving as president.
2: The difficulty with Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is it doesn't define what it means by insurrection or rebellion. And even more important, it doesn't define who is to make that determination, does Congress have to make that determination that Section 3 is met? Can each state determine on its own? I expect there's going to be litigation in many states to keep Donald Trump off the ballot on the grounds that he engaged in insurrection. So there's the possibility, even if he's not convicted, it can be argued that he participated in insurrection We get off the ballot. And there's also the argument that says that even if he's convicted of these charges, none of them are about insurrection And therefore, he can't be kept off the ballot. My own conclusion would be like Jamie Raskin's, and I think there's going to be litigation in state courts, but again, we're in such unprecedented territory. I think what's so important to keep foremost in mind is this is about the President of the United States attempting a coup to stay in power after he had lost. There's been no trial in history more important than this in the United States. And this is all evidence that shows that's exactly what President Trump was trying to do.
0: Erwin Chemerinsky, he's dean of the law school at UC Berkeley. Erwin, thanks for helping us today. Truly my pleasure. (laughs) It's the same old story, this is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. The number one movie in the world right now is not Spider-Man. It's not Batman or Ant-Man or Captain Marvel. It's Barbie, with more than $1 billion in ticket sales as of last weekend, and it's probably the most explicitly feminist movie ever made. For comment, we turn to our most explicitly feminist writer, Katha Pollitt. Of course, she's a poet, essayist, and award-winning columnist for the nation. Her work has also appeared in The New Yorker, The Atlantic, and The New York Times. And her most recent book is Pro Reclaiming Abortion Rights. Katha, welcome back.
3: Hi, John. Thanks for having me on the show.
0: Two questions at the top here. Were you ever a Barbie fan, and did you like the Barbie movie?
3: I was never a Barbie fan. I thought Barbie was kind of tacky. I think I had one, but I was 11 when Barbie came out. So I kind of missed it. I loved the movie. I thought the movie was hilarious and visually splendiferous um, (laughs) and uh, very funny
0: of course, feminists have always said Barbie is bad for girls because it makes them hate their bodies because they are not blondes with tiny waists and big breasts. Did you agree with that for the last 40 years?
3: I do agree with that. And science backs me up. There's a study where they gave a variety of different dolls to little girls and the ones that got the ones that were busty and thin and with really, you know, exaggeratedly long legs, hated their bodies more. You can always do this. You can always say, well, it's not Barbie. It's this other thing. It's everything altogether." But Barbie is in there doing her, doing her work.
0: You have a daughter. Uh, what was your Barbie policy with her when she was little?
3: Oh, that was funny. Well, when she was about, I don't know, maybe four or three, she wanted a Barbie. And I explained to her that Barbie was, um, you know, unrealistic and all that. But eventually, so as not to fetishize it, I gave her a Barbie. But I had bad talked Barbie so much. (laughs) Before you know it, Barbie was a bath toy. (laughs) She was in there with the rubber duck. (laughs) And that was the end of Barbie at our house.
0: Well, turning to the movie here, I did notice the gender roles in Barbie are very traditional. There are Barbies, there are kins, and that is it. There's no lesbian Barbie. There's no bi Barbie. Barbie is not a they.
3: Barbie has no sex. Barbie is, does not have... Um, yes, yeah, she actually says to uh, the construction workers who are hassling her on Venice Beach, I don't have a vagina. <laughs> funny.
0: But um, there was a pregnant Barbie uh, that was midge in 2002. It had, I have learned, a detachable magnetic pregnant stomach, which you could open up to find a small plastic baby curled up inside. What what happened to the magnetic pregnant Barbie?
3: Well, this is funny because you would think that conservatives would love pregnant Midge because they wouldn't love the idea of Barbie as just having all these careers um, and not being maternal. But they didn't like it for whatever reason. And so that was the end of Midge. Now in the movie, this is funny, there's a a character named Alan. And I spent the whole movie thinking, you know, who is Alan supposed to be? Alan was the husband of Midge. Midge was married, of course, and she had this husband. And in the movie, he's just sort of wandering around, wondering what's what. <laughs> no, no place in the Barbie world.
0: And then there's some, there was a growing up skipper in 1975, Barbie's younger sister, who was meant to educate young girls about the realities of puberty, rotating her left arm made her breasts grow skipper was pulled off the market pretty quickly do you know why
3: i i don't know it seems a little too complicated doesn't it
0: i thought it was probably because rotating your arm does not give you big breasts
3: no, no you have to go like say <laughs> i must i must improve my bus <laughs>
0: that's <laughs> a different movie and there have been a lot of other barbies uh, remind us about that
3: She's had over 200 careers, doctor, veterinarian, ballerina, chef, cupcake chef, lifeguard, president. Um, there's there's a, Barbies of every race and skin tone now. Um, there's been Barbies intended to make girls feel better about their, their bodies, like wheelchair Barbie, Down syndrome Barbie, vitiligo Barbie, prosthetic leg Barbie. And bald Barbie. And then get this, there's also curvy, quote unquote, Barbie, who is actually normal weight Barbie.
0: <laughs> Mattel has obviously become aware of the feminist critique about body image. The movie winks at the feminist critique by having our protagonist describe herself as stereotypical Barbie. And she learns a lot from weird Barbie. That's Kate McKinnon, who's fabulous here. Stereotypical Barbie wants to, in her words, be real. But I would think the point of being real, first of all, would be not to look like stereotypical Barbie. And that, of course, is the one thing Mattel does not want to say.
3: Exactly. Uh, The movie... Does a wonderful thing where suddenly Barbie's feet go flat <laughs> and then later, when she's in real in the real world, she says she's wearing these um these high heels and she's she says, oh my god if my if I were a real woman, I would never wear these shoes.
0: <laughs> remember the the Barbie Liberation Organization of nineteen ninety two this was after Mattel released. Teen Talk Barbie, which had a voice box. You pressed a button and it said four things, including math class is tough. The Barbie Liberation Organization, BLO, took Barbies off the shelves of big box toy stores, along with G.I. Joe dolls, and switched the voice boxes. So the G.I. Joe said, I love shopping. And Barbie said, vengeance is mine. And then they put the dolls back in the boxes and put the boxes back in the stores. They called it reverse shoplifting.
3: That is really funny. That's wonderful. Well, it's interesting, isn't it, that Barbie gets a lot of attention for her various political and feminist failings. No one ever talks about G.I. Joe. Here we <laughs> give children, a soldier doll in a very warlike society with an enormous militaristic arms budget and all the rest and constant intervention in war. And that's all fine. Um, That's just like being a man is not seen as complicated in the way that being a woman is.
0: Greta Gerwig, in a recent New York Times magazine profile, said the achievement of the Barbie movie was, quote, doing the thing and subverting the thing close quote. Maybe she's talking about the part in the movie where Barbie tells Gloria, her articulate friend in the real world, quote, by giving voice to the cognitive dissonance required to be a woman under the patriarchy, you've robbed it of its power, close quote. Of course, that's a joke for the gender studies grad students in the audience.
3: That was pretty funny, and I'm not sure that it's true either.
0: I I do wonder if you agree with Greta Gerwig that the film subverts Barbie.
3: I think it goes as far to subvert Barbie as it is possible to go in a mass market movie that is, you know, produced by Mattel. But, you know, it is, I was thinking about this ever since I wrote my piece that, you know, there's this wonderful glorious rant by America Ferrara playing Gloria, the friend who is a receptionist at Mattel and the mother of a, very sullen, Barbie-hating middle schooler. And she talks about these many double binds and everybody can relate to this. You have to be thin, but not too thin. And you can never say you want to be thin. You have to say you want to be healthy, but also you have to be thin. You're supposed to love being a mother, but don't talk about your kids all the time. Never get old, never be rude, never show off, never be selfish. It's too hard. It's too contradictory and nobody gives you a medal or says thank you. Um, And it turns out, in fact, that not only are you doing everything wrong, but also everything is your fault. You know, I used to keep a list of things that people said were women's faults. It got very long, that
0: list. One other great uh, moment of Barbie's friend, Gloria, she's been secretly drawing these rogue Barbies, crippling shame Barbie and irrepressible thoughts of death Barbie.
3: Yes. And that's what sets up Barbie, you know, channels these thoughts. And that's what sets her off in the real world and having these um, these irrepressible thoughts of death. I thought that was pretty great. That was very existentialist, wasn't it? Yes, it was.
0: One of our former colleagues at The Nation magazine, Christine Smallwood, wrote recently in the magazine N plus one, quote, if I'm going to be spiritually murdered by capitalism in nostalgia. I don't want to be winked at while it's happening, close quote. I thought that was pretty good.
3: I think people do want to be winked at while it's happening. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think this. I mean, this movie is very successful. Even in China, I just heard today on the radio that uh, at first it didn't go over so well, and the Chinese weren't so keen on it, the, the government wasn't so keen on it, but everybody loves it. Um, and the reason they love it is because China has become – an extremely sexist place. Um, And this is a way for women to rebel. So I think people make their resistance where they can out of the materials that are available. And right now, this movie is available.
0: Well, my friend John Powers argues that the real feminist meaning of the film is that it's the most successful movie ever made by a woman, And that Greta Gerwig made a film that's made a billion dollars and is critically admired. And that's the real important part of Barbie rather than anything in its ideas. I wonder if you agree with that.
3: Well, of course I would have preferred if it is the most feminist movie ever made that made a billion dollars was, you know, the life of Simone de Beauvoir. (laughs)
0: Yes.
3: That would have been better. Uh, But in this world, it's a truly amazing success. I, I went when I went, which was opening night at in Westbrook, Connecticut. There were all these people, some of whom were men, and they were wearing pink. And they one older woman had brought her Barbies. She had, you know, <laughs> Barbies back from the 60s. So this is something people can really relate to because it's about their childhood.
0: But unfortunately, as Michelle Goldberg pointed out in her New York Times column, the lesson Hollywood is taking from the billion-dollar success of Barbie is not to make more stories for girls and women, but to make more movies about toys. She says there's 14 movies based on Mattel intellectual property that have been announced, including features about the 1980s action figure He-Man and the boxing game Rock'em Sock'em Robots.
3: It's like people have totally run out of ideas. And so they ransack the recent past for obscure toys. I mean, it's ridiculous.
0: Who is missing from Barbie land?
3: Well, in Barbie land, there's no frumpy Barbie. No too busy to care about my hair, Barbie. No, I hate to shop Barbie. (laughs) No, don't bother me. I'm writing Barbie. I'd like (laughs) to have that one. (laughs)
0: The official Barbie message is that girls can be anything, but but what?
3: But you still have to be gorgeous while you're doing it. <laughs>
0: okay. And what if stereotypical Barbie actually ran for president in the real world?
3: Yeah, that would really be uh, quite something. Um, people would call her an over-ambitious bottle blonde clothes horse. And then Ken would sell his story to the National Enquirer, Barbie's tragic secret, she hates kids. And Fox would give him his own show.
0: (laughs) Katha Pollitt, you can read her new column, The Double Bind of Greta Gerwig's Barbie, at thenation.com. Thank you, Katha.
3: Thanks so much for having me, John.
0: It's it for today's living in the usa our social media maven is renee reynolds kpfk's programming traffic director is matt perez thanks as always to rye cooter for our theme music mambo sinuendo living in the usa is recorded and produced at our Blythe avenue studios in los angeles if you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA.